Hello, Liturgy Eye listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we dive back into our mini-series about post-conciliar documents, and we are talking about Pope Paul VI's motu proprio called Sacrum Liturgium. So without further ado, episode 12 of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Why am I playing trumpet fanfare, sort of, Jesse? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Uh, we have questions because you have just been named Il Direttore, Le Directeur, Das Director of the Liturgical Institute. Is that true? I, it is true, Chris. I didn't tell you. <laughs> wow. Now, we are glad for podcast. you, of course. Promotion, probably a raise. Who knows what? You can finally feed your kids. They're not starving on the street anymore. Boy, Isaac was <laughs> real hungry, too. <laughs> but we want to talk about this because in the past, you know, directors have been people with doctorates in theology and sacramental theology. And, you know, now all of a sudden, you. <laughs> Thank you. Who are a capable person in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> but who do not have advanced degrees in theology are the director. Uh, what does this mean, Jesse? Aside from good for you, like how would our alums or students or anybody else try to figure out what it means that you're the director? You're not well, trying I, to be the next Mannion or Fagerberg or Martis, are you? No, I'm not even trying to be the next McNamara. Yeah, well, uh, good luck on that one anyway. <laughs> it's hard enough for you to be the first McNamara, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm glad you asked because this is um, it, it is a bit different than historically, uh, you know, historically speaking, it's different than what we've had in the past. But uh, I had a few meetings with leadership on campus, including Father Bema and Father Karchi, who's the president of the University of St. Mary of the Lake, who's also like the head honcho on campus. And they had both kind of agreed that what they wanted to do in terms of leadership for the Liturgical Institute is focus on two things, continuity and creativity. So they've been looking at some of the things we've been doing here at the Liturgical Institute, including the Elements of the Catholic Mass series, which if you haven't seen that, you should go check that out. Uh, This podcast, The Liturgy Guys, uh, our online program that we're doing, which has been going really well, and even our Young Adult Liturgy Conference, which we have hundreds of people uh, attend every year. And looking at that and saying, wow, there's, there's some really great stuff there. So they're really trying to pivot focus onto some of those things while retaining the academic in, um, integrity by which uh, will continue through the means of a academic director, which they are searching for right now. Aha. So in the past, I guess, administrative director and academic director were kind of the same person most of the time. Correct. So even though it doesn't say administrative in front of your name, that's kind of your area of authority. Is that right? Correct. The the academic person they hire who will be a person with doctorate in theology and so on, when they hire that person, that person will be in charge of 
the academic programs and the content. Right. And all that. They'll be okay. in, in charge of the curriculum and they'll be in charge of, you know, theses and all that type of stuff that comes with the academic uh portion of the liturgical institute, which would allow me then to kind of oversee some of that, but then also look at some of the bigger picture things that we've been working on initiatives. And that's the stuff that Father Karchi and Father Bema said they really want to focus on and continue uh, with these creative endeavors that we've been doing. So, right. Well, that uh, helps. I think, I think the terminology is a little confusing, maybe, if you don't know what, how it's all working. But mm-hmm. I guess if anybody's wondering what's happening at the Liturgical Institute, it's really going to do the same thing. It's just that you are going to take more of a leadership role in that area that you, in which you have expertise, correct? Right. And I've just been waiting for you to leave. So now it's my time, my time to just swipe it. You know? mm-hmm. no, I, but, I was, but Dennis uh, and I get to come back and still teach, though, right? This is... Well, uh, uh, can we have that conversation <laughs> offline, Chris? I would. Uh... <laughs> well, Chris, you've been invited back for the summer session, right? And so have I. I'll be going. Correct. So, Correct. in many ways, you know, people in the summer program or thinking about the summer program, they won't really have much of a different academic experience. But the same faculty will be involved, uh, just be a different person, kind of overseeing day to day stuff. So, right there, you go. Yeah. No, I think it's great, Jesse. I mean, the a lot of what the Allies been able to do oh, uh, since you've been there is. Uh, fantastic stuff and i'm glad that's going to keep uh keep improving and uh, ex- uh expanding and so awesome. we'll continue to teach about the sacrum liturgium mm-hmm. segway award for me right mm-hmm. yeah oh well i i just i didn't tell you this but we created a segway award and yes. uh for and our I 20th mean, for our 20th anniversary you're going to get it so yes segway and the award. the prize is a segway for getting right. all the hills here on campus is that a yeah, thing? Hey. benedictine college yeah nice what's a well, segway Oh, you don't know what a Segway is? Segway is a little two-wheeled thing that sometimes you see, like, mall cops go around on, like, in the cities. It's like a two-wheeled scooter thing. No, I know that. What's the other Segway, though? Oh, I said because the Sacrum <laughs> Liturgium is going to continue at the Liturgical Institute. Which leads us into the apostolic letter from Pope Paul VI mm. called Sacrum Liturgium, which means what, Chris? It uh, means one of those little scooters. That no. they go around the bed, but when they did away with the chair where they carried around, carried oh, around, that would be great. With the, what does sacrum liturgia mean? That's an easy one. It means the sacred liturgy. How about that? And it's a uh, yeah. motu proprio. Yeah. yeah. Issued mo- It's a, an apostolic letter issued motu proprio, which is something I've never heard of before. So mm. uh, usually motu proprio oh, is just a motu Oh, that's like a, a double, double whammy there. Yeah. So it's an apostolic letter issued by his own authorities. So yeah, yeah. Interesting combination of document types there. Yeah. What else, what else uh, contextualize it for us? When, when did he write this? January 25th, 1964. I feel like you mm. knowing the dates of all these things. <laughs> and it was released at 1034 a.m. Italian time. Right Wait, before, really? No, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. It was right, right after Cappuccino. You for that it, every time. Right before lunch. <laughs> so there it is. And yeah. so to 64 is timely in relation to the Second Vatican Council because, Chris? Well, it's timely because it's still going on, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also, uh, Jesse will remember this, December 4th, 1963. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, so yes. what's that, six weeks before, seven weeks before? That's when Sacrosanctum Concilium was promulgated by uh, Paul VI. So this is six, seven weeks later. And what he's trying to do here is, so Sacrosanctum Concilium gives rather broad uh, principles, norms, guidelines for the reform and restoration of the liturgy. Uh, A lot of those need to be sort of uh, 
seen in, in the rights and rubrics and texts of the actual books. But what he's doing here, he's saying, well, until the, until the reform books come out, there's some things that can take place already uh, immediately after the Constitution. Right. And I bet there were people all over the world saying, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then so he shows up and says, well, I'll give you a start. I'm saying that right now, actually. <laughs> well, you know, people have all kinds of feelings about Vatican II, thoughts about Vatican II. But the second document of this little letter and as it goes, I mean, second paragraph, as it goes into the third paragraph, it should just be like a warm breeze on a cold day or a cool breeze on a warm day to make you feel like, wow, now I understand what Vatican II is actually about. Can you, I'll tell you why. Don't guess. I'll tell you why. (laughs) (laughs) Because he says, Sacrosanta Concilium said X, Y, Z. And the first thing he quotes from He says this lively interest in the liturgy stems from the quote from Vatican II, which says, quote, in the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem, toward which we journey as pilgrims. And he goes on for that whole section about singing a hymn to the Lord's glory with the warriors of the heavenly army, venerating the memory of the saints. That's a good quote. I like it. Eagerly awaiting the Savior until he shall appear and we will appear with him in glory. And he says, for this reason, for this reason, so that we can imitate what he says is the principal model of all holiness is to imitate the heavenly Zion, which is why he wants Vatican II to have happened and why he wants to implement it right away. It's not because people are in the pews board, although that's part of it. It's not because the people have a right to their own language or demand things from their pastor or, you know, have this bottom up kind of Marxist understanding of liturgy. He says, for this reason, the souls of the faithful worship God, the principal and model of all holiness in such a way as to be in this earthly pilgrimage that's sacramentally unearthed, imitators of the heavenly Zion. So that is the umbrella phrase about every other thing that should uh, come after Vatican II. Yeah, so I, is, is this but, the first document that came out? Is this the first of the series that we are, we're talking about? Uh, it is, it is. But there's, so after, remember we did a couple podcasts ago, we did the one on kind of the history, a little bit of uh, before and after of uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and this is the most significant one. There are these five instructions for the proper implementation. Uh, that's going to come next. This this isn't one of those five, but this is oh, the very okay. first document that came out after Sacrosanctum Concilium that's starting to apply its principles. Yeah, and Dennis, my read on this uh, was very much like yours, right? So we, Sacrosanctum Concilium is 130, 135 paragraphs paragraphs long and the very one, the one he mentions first the one he pulls out of all the things that the constitution said was this mention of the heavenly liturgy the heavenly army the heavenly zion um i so i don't know maybe that's too superficial of a read but i think the the one thing he wants to emphasize about the constitution coming right out of the gate is eschatology and heaven I don't think that's a superficial read at all. I mean, this guy, he knows what he's doing, right? And he says it it couldn't be any clearer. For this reason, the souls should be imitators of the heavenly Zion. And for this reason, mm. everybody should study, consecrate themselves to the study of liturgy. That's in the next sentence. So that's that's a big, super clear, no room for alternative uh, implementations, I don't think, or interpretations. Well, you wouldn't think so, but this is... uh, I mean... How would you describe the post-conciliar liturgy, though? Heavenly or mundane? 
Well, just because people failed to implement it properly doesn't mean that that wasn't Paul VI's intention. No, you're right, though. But isn't that the unfortunate problem? You read what he says. You think, oh, there's no there's no question about what this liturgy is supposed to be like. Yet you hear things that it's supposed to be bottom up liturgy, like you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. It's supposed to be, you know, as common as, uh, you know, as white bread. I mean, it's just uh, it, it's this, mm, this disconnect. I know. How I know. is this? How is this information disseminated to like the average layperson at the time? I imagine the average layperson never read one of these. I mean, probably went out to the bishops, and they maybe not have read it either. So, yeah. Well, there yeah, you go. I think, <laughs> well, I think too. When when we get to the, we're going to get to a podcast on uh, interecumenity, which is the. Uh, the first instruction on the proper implementation of the Constitution. So, and I'll probably point this out again when we get there, is that when this document comes out and when it's being applied, all the bishops are gone from their dioceses. They're all in Rome at the council. And so you think, who's in charge of Who's in charge of this? Well, if all the bishops Who's are babysitting the priests, <laughs> so that's, well, that's it. I mean, if all the bishops are gone, I mean, it, it, there was there. I think there really there was there obviously was a real disconnect between what oh, what the council and what the popes uh, were saying and how things got uh, implemented. So, in fact, if I can just give another example of this, I'm going to go back to the very first document, uh, first uh, sentence here. Uh, it says, uh, of the many documents on liturgical questions that have been published and are well known to all demonstrate how it was the ceaseless concern of our predecessors in the pontificate and of the holy shepherds to preserve diligently, to cultivate, and to renew the liturgy. So the very first line of this Sacram Liturgium says that it's about preserving diligently, that is what that which has come before, as well as renewing the liturgy according to need. And now, I like I, that he mentions his predecessors too, because that's Pius X, Pius XI, Benedict XV, Pius XII, John Twenty-Third. Who would, who would be the context for understanding what all this means? Well, that, that's precisely it. I mean, if this, what he's lying out here is what Benedict uh, XVI would eventually call this hermeneutic of uh, reform and renewal, that this isn't a, a breach with tradition and the beginning of something new. There might be new elements uh, about it, but it should be seen, read, implemented, practiced uh, according to the one church's uh, uh, centuries-old life. Um, yeah, but he's clear about all these things. How come we're not clear about them in the last 50 years? Was there, was uh, maybe this is a stupid question, but was there a, a USCCB back then that kind of had a very consistent, clear message coming from the council to uh, Catholics in America? Or was or did like each bishop kind of say, okay, this is what I think is happening here and this is how we're implementing it? What do you think, Dennis? Do you know? Well, the interecumenity gives all those rules about the forming of territorial bishops, what we call conferences now. So did did they have some kind of thing before that? It sounds like they didn't. I, I, I don't know the answer myself, but yeah, it sounds Turns like they didn't. that was a smart question. <laughs> no, no, it was a great question. I'd imagine there had to be some sort of national conference of some kind, but certainly not as we know it today. So, yeah, I, I think the, you know, the structures weren't uh, in place uh, very well to, to help implement this. Yeah. All right. So what's next okay. in this uh, motu proprio? Well, it seems, uh, yeah, it seems that, uh, you know, as Dennis said, it's for these reasons that uh, we are, we have the privilege of participating in the heavenly liturgy with the heavenly army and the heavenly Zion that um, uh, the Constitution was written 
And what needs to happen at this point, very early on, is he, he lists two things. Is One is that uh, bishops, priests, especially uh, priests and those who are in charge of uh, souls have to study this. They have to uh, study what the, the Constitution. They have to know about it. They have to understand it. So there's a real emphasis in this on, uh, on understanding. Uh, and then secondly, following the understanding is about the implementation of the things that it says. Now, in this, uh, this next paragraph where he, where he lays all this stuff out, uh, for example, he says that uh, all the faithful need to, be, need to understand uh, the strength and inner value of the liturgy. Boom. The strength and inner value of the liturgy. Now, that, that's a line that stood out uh, to me when I was reading this. I mean, it puts you on the spot here, uh, Weiler. Uh, what is the <laughs> director strength? Weiler? What is this, the now that you're the director? You have to know the answers to all of our questions. Okay. You can't play the everyman anymore. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, ask yourself this question. Ask your your spouse. The sounds your, like your, you're your asking me this question. Well, I am. What's the strength and inner value of the liturgy that Paul the Sixth wants all of the faithful to know about? Well, I I don't know if that this is what he said, but I know that the the two. Uh, results of liturgy are the two uh, goals of the liturgy are the glorification of God and the sanctification of man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does that, uh, how has that been carried out to the most infinite of degrees in the history of salvation? Well, how did that I mean, happen? Through, through Jesus Christ. Yeah. Say more. Well, he's, he's, he allowed us to participate and to be able to sacrifice and to be sanctified through him, through the, through the participation in the sacred liturgy. And then while doing that, we are glorifying God. Well, I think that's it. Is the, the inner, what's the phrase you use again? The strength and inner value of the liturgy is the priestly office of Christ the high priest, who mm-hmm. through his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension has, as you say, Jesse, glorified God and, and given uh, sanctification given us the possibility to become a divinized and sanctified and all of that grace is now made available in the sacred liturgy right and exactly you know, what I said we're coming up on a Christmas that? right so the incarnation you think oh isn't that nice that God was humble and became human well it's not just that he was trying to show how humble, humble he was it's if humanity is joined to divinity then humanity can actually enter into the dialogue of the presence of the Trinity, and therefore they can enter into the sacrifice of Christ to the Father, share in the redemptive power of Christ, share in the resurrection power of Christ. And this is played out, acted out in a real way in the liturgy. And if people aren't doing it, they're missing out on that. So the inner power and the nature of the liturgy are to participate in that so that you can become like the citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, which is paragraph eight of the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which Paul VI starts with. Mm -hmm. At least that's what I think. Yeah. No, I think so too. I mean, if uh, uh, all these reforms were made to, uh, were done to make that inner strength and power uh, available to us in a more uh, fruitful, fruitful way. But how many know it? How many know it? So just this, the three of this, us. This, yeah, just the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's kind of his introduction. And what he says uh, next uh, is that he's also going to do something more practical, and he's going to establish this special commission called the uh, Concilium, 
and this commission will get established in March of 64. Right? So you're keeping track. Yeah, December 63 was the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. January 64, you have this uh, Sacram Liturgium, and then March, he's going to establish this uh, Concilium. And, this and that's is, the Ratzinger group, right? The people who no. want to like... No. Oh, it's a different... It's, oh, I see what you're it's saying. It's associated okay. more with the, the Rahner group, I guess, if you think about it. But. Well, no, no, I think we're confusing terms here. There's uh, uh, afterwards, the, these two terms, Concilium and... Uh, that's what uh, I was talking about, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's not that. This is, this is more akin to the, the Congregation for Divine Worship. Oh, okay. Okay. So this is called uh, the Concilium for the, I think it's called the Concilium for the Correct Implementation of Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's meant to be a temporary working group that's going to uh, take the, the principles and norms and apply them in a very practical way in the reform and restoration of the books. And then it's going to be done and it's going to go away, essentially. Right. And so then, they're kind of and like then the, redone later. Yeah. <laughs> They're sort of the act, action group, right? So we've, we've had a board meeting. We've decided these are our principles. Okay, who's taking the action steps? You. You're on the liturgy revision team. You. You're on the divine mm -hmm. office revision yes. team and so on. So hopefully these are people who can understand the liturgy and then like change, actually change the books. That's when uh, a movement becomes reform. Right, right. So it's in this letter that he establishes this uh, concilium, and this is uh, our, arch our bishop or archbishop, I don't know which he was, uh, Anabale Bonini will become the, uh, I don't know, secretary. I'm not sure what his title was uh, for that. But while they will start to do the actual textual, ritual, rubrical revisions on the books, he's going to lay out in the rest of this letter certain things that can be done uh, while these books are being revised. Oh, okay. like a sneak peek. Well, kind of, yeah. So let, should we go through some of those, Dennis? Sure. Yeah, so he's saying uh, in this letter in January 64, he says, I'll tell you what, on February 16th, uh, people can start to do this everywhere under the proper authority. And he lists, uh, let's see, 11 things that can take place before any of the books themselves get revised. So, uh, I don't know. Let's go through, I highlighted a couple of them. Uh, the, the first one uh, was the teaching of liturgy in seminaries uh, should be worked into programs in such a way that beginning in the next school year, students may devote themselves to such study in an orderly and diligent way. Which doesn't sound all that exotic, right? Why would this be stated in an apostolic letter? Wait, wait, you mean we have to have liturgy class in the seminary? Not just the how to say mass <laughs> class in the seminary? <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I have I have a quick tangent about this. Sorry, uh -huh. uh, I just found out uh, a couple days ago that uh, Bishop Perry is going to be returning for our Young Adult Liturgy Conference this summer, and he uh, is going to talk about what it was like to be in seminary during all of this. And I think that is like, going to be a fascinating insight uh, from somebody who was actually, you know, in seminary while all of this was happening. Oh, yeah. No, I think that'd be a, a fascinating talk to hear. I mean, the three of us and others who are listening. You know, are the, the other one. The yeah. other one that's listening. Your wife. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Uh, <laughs> I bet Wayne Rich is listening. You know what he yeah. told me? He's in Phoenix. He's a good listener and a good guy. He said that when he would go on vacations, he'd make his kids listen to liturgy guys in the oh, car. <laughs> what did they do wrong? <laughs> I know. I, went, I didn't want to tell him. And Chris Don't like, make me turn on the liturgy guys. Chris <laughs> did that as a punishment for his kids. So. 
I yeah, said to him, no, just I mean, let them go to Disney World without liturgy, guys. Come on, Wayne. Yeah, but but you know how frustrating we can get with what we see on paper, you know, uh, what what we see in practice, and the, the disconnect and the confusion. Oftentimes, that happens in the in things liturgical. Imagine being a seminarian at this time in the church, when you're you're having to learn two different sets of books and uh, in some ways different sets of principles. Yeah, I'd imagine that's very frustrating. Yeah, but. and I'd love to hear from a priest now who is a seminarian at this time, right before the council. Like, what did they actually learn about the liturgy? You know, when Reynold Hillenbrand was the rector at Mundelein, he made it a big deal in the 30s that students would actually learn about the nature of the liturgy and not just learn how to say Mass. And that some of the articles that you see in some of the journals in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they're like, if we had only had a class in liturgy, all we had a class, all we had was a class in rubrics. And I remember picking up this book at the Mundelein Seminary Library, and it was, it was the textbook for how to say Mass. And it must have been 150 pages of you approach the altar, eyes slightly down. You walk up to the altar, bent at a 30-degree angle with the elbows barely touching the edge, thumb, right thumb over left thumb. You're like, oh my gosh, how can I even remember all, you know, all these precise, minute little discussions? But is anybody saying in these books, present yourself joined to the mystical body of Christ so that you can enter into the dialogue of the Trinity, that you can die and rise again? Or is it you have to say Mass according to the rubric so you validly could fake the Eucharist and people kind of get their spiritual vitamin pill? Well, yeah, well, I think that's it is, is associating those things together is that, you know, the reason you have the right thumb over your left thumb or you bow at, at this spot or to this degree is that these are uh, suitable, appropriate, traditional, authentic uh, sacramental signs that manifest your desire to become a, a, a humble victim before the altar of God and things like that. Yeah, the, the connecting of the dots seems to have been something very, very absent. Um, you know, remember during the mystical body, mystical voice days, Dennis, we did a number of presentations on the words of the mass and we went about it in this sort of sacramental mystagogical way is that, you know, we say, and with your spirit, for example, not just because the rubrics say so, which they do, and that binds us to saying it that way, but because in these words is conveyed this handful of spiritual truths and the potential for a grace-filled encounter with Christ and the conformity to his Paschal mystery and all these things. And I've heard, not that, you know, I, I heard from priests who were, you know, been ordained 50 years and they say, we never heard any of this stuff in this uh, in the seminary. It I was, hear that from priests ordained three years, to yeah, tell you the truth, yeah. sadly, sadly. Anyway. But the point is, if this is, as we understand it, is accurate, and everybody's experience in seminary at that time may be different, but they were learning how to say mass fixated on rubrics, which I'm not anti-rubric, but rubrics don't substitute for understanding the nature of the liturgy itself. So number one, seminaries and schools of religious communities should have programs in liturgy this fall is basically what he's saying. So six months from now, have somebody actually teaching liturgy classes. Yeah. Let's take another one. Uh, I, I thought number two was worth uh, mentioning. And Jesse, you mentioned this uh, to some degree earlier about in each diocese, there's supposed to be a liturgical, a liturgical commission under the direction of the bishop to help foster knowledge and advance the liturgical apostolate. Uh, and so, I mean, in every diocese, still to this day, there's supposed to be a liturgical commission, and these can include uh, uh, commissions or committees, rather, on sacred art and sacred music as Aren't well. Aren't you on one of those? I am. All right. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, so interestingly, sometimes these commissions become the enemy of the good, not 
by looking for the perfect, but just because of the same kind of misunderstandings that a lot of people have. I can't tell you how many times I've been working with a pastor who has all the right intentions. They want to build a beautiful church. They have a good architect lined up. And the commission is run by people who haven't had a new thought in 30 years, and they just get in the way of doing something really, really good. On the other hand, if the commission is really good, they can you know, promote good ideas. So I imagine, Chris, your commission and your brain there in, uh, in the cross <laughs> does good work. Yeah. Well, we do good work because we're not loaded with opinions. I mean, we have them because we're thinking people, but we want Because to. you don't have any opinions? Or? <laughs> it's because <laughs> we know what the church says and we know what the needs of the diocese are, so we can give uh, good consultation to, to the bishop. Uh, third one, uh, homilies. How about that? Uh, there should be a homily be on Sunday, on Sunday yeah. Mass and Holy mm-hmm. Days. Yeah. Why on earth would they say that, Chris? Because that sounds very foreign to our ex- life experience now. Was there well, not a homily before? Well, that's that's a good question. I know if there were, there were sermons, and I think that's a little bit different animal than than a homily. A homily is strict is a liturgical thing. Uh, it's uh, preached on uh, the, the text of the mass, whether it's the readings or any of the texts of the mass, and not necessarily you know catechetical uh, uh, in in nature. So this seems to be something we're still. I don't know. I've never given a homily in my life. Uh, but I think we had that homiletic directory not too long ago. Pope Francis is constantly talking about homilies. It still seems something we're, we're, we're searching towards, the right, the right formula, if in fact there is yeah. one. And, you know, as I read it, it wasn't so much don't do a sermon, do a homily, right? And a sermon would be kind of a catechetical lesson rather than a homily, which would be about the readings or the liturgy of that day. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to say you should just have one, right? Because a lot of times in the low mass, especially mm-hmm. if it's early on a weekday, and you see this sometimes now, still in, in ordinary form, even or extraordinary form, no homily at all, just straight from uh, one thing to the next after the gospel into the Eucharistic prayer. And so teach people. This is the place where you teach people about the liturgy. So, and yeah. But interestingly, it says especially on Sundays and holy days, um, which isn't mandatory kind of every, every day of a ferial day during the week. Mm-hmm. But now it's kind of normal to us. And so this is a case where this liturgical stuff from the council actually became normative pretty fast. Yeah. Let's go to number six. In the divine office, he says the hour of prime uh, is suppressed. Which one is that, Chris? Uh, it's the primus. Uh, it's the first one. So there were eight hours uh, for praying the divine office, and prime would have been, I don't know, I guess at like 6 a.m. So you had prime, terce, sext, and non one, three, six, and nine. And that first one, uh, first one prime, I think was a later edition. Um, and so they ended up, and remember one of the goals they're trying to do is to restore the liturgy to the so-called pristine condition of the fathers. Uh, and so a lot of these things that came in along the way ended up being uh, uh, suppressed and prime was one of them. Right. And if you read some of the documents before this, the popes are concerned that you have changed traditions. So if you were Say a little country priest in the 1400s, you might have, you know, a little mission, a lot of time on your hands. You could do the office. You were sort of half monk, half contemplative, but working in a diocesan setting. What they realized is that cities had changed a lot and priests were busy all day. They had lots of demands and to sort of make them do the same hours that monks did of the city, uh, saying the Liturgy of the Hours. It was very hard and very demanding on them. And so the simplification and the shortening of that was something that would, would help adapt to modern conditions. Yeah, well, then throw in laity in that as well, that uh, the council wanted the, the lay faithful to be able to pray some of the hours, especially the principal hours. And now you've got to come up with a, with a bereavery that's suitable for monks 
and secular clergy and laity. So it was a very difficult task. And then you have to revise it like 50 years later. Well, you do. That, but we, sh- we shouldn't be upset with that. I mean, that's <laughs> No, just, no, I'm uh, not upset with it. I'm just... Quit your I'm complaining. Just... <laughs> hey, although, let's go to number nine. This is, uh, this is an especially interesting one from a nerd sort of uh, standpoint. Well... So number, <laughs> number nine is about uh, uh, the use of the vernacular. And the versions are to be uh, proposed by the Competent Territorial Bishops' Conference and must be reviewed and approved by the Holy See. Mm-hmm. So in uh, um, th- so this is still about the divine office uh, in this particular instance, about translating the divine office. Uh, but what is um, kind of the, the long... I don't want to say this. The the why this paragraph is interesting is you see there the word is approved by the Holy See, and apparently um, this this uh, was translated one way in Lazaritori Romano, or the word we use, was used was recognitio, but in the uh, Acta Apostolica Sedis, this is like the official acts of the Holy See. You were right about it, the nerd thing here, Chris. It is called confirmatio. Right. And so this is lived on from from kind of that moment to our day is translate our translations to be confirmed by the Holy See or uh, recognized. That is but the translation itself was, uh, interpreted. Yeah, was a problem. That's oh, funny. isn't that crazy? The irony, yeah. the irony. Right. So this is what Manum Principium in 2017 by Pope uh, Francis tried to sort out is, you know, Liturgiam Authenticum says, no, no, they need the translations need to be uh, have a recognitio. Pope Francis said, no, no, that's wrong. If you go all the way back to uh, uh, Sacram Liturgiam, it's uh, confirmatio. But is that nerdy? Very. Yeah. Well, it, it's nerdy, and, but it's also interesting that this 1964 document set up problems that we're still trying to solve, you know, yeah. I mean, 55 years later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what else do you talk about? Episcopal conferences? But actually, before we do that, I think it's yeah. kind of worth talking about that people singing the Liturgy of the Hours, the Divine Office, mm-hmm. get to do it in the vernacular in some way. And, you know, I imagine if you were a nun or a brother or, you know, someone who didn't really know Latin, you're going to choir for singing morning prayer every day. If you don't know what the Latin means, you're just kind of mouthing syllables. And it's kind of hard to imagine that you can actually form an intention to praise God if you don't know what the words are saying. How can you say the words with the internal participation if you don't know what they mean? And so I think there's a tendency to say, oh man, before the council, everything was great. Latin was awesome. It's a language of the ages and language of the angels and all that stuff. But I think people here were seeing real pastoral problems that sometimes uh, if you have a romantic look back at the time, it's, uh, it's a little easy to overlook serious problems like studying class in Latin as they did in the seminary every day. You know, the, the teachers weren't really fluent in Latin all the time, and they would write out notes and just read them year after year after year in Latin to people who maybe didn't understand Latin as a living language. And can you imagine what a joke it might have been to go to class just to have some syllables read to you? <laughs> and then you have a textbook in Latin that you're trying to translate, never mind understand. And so, you know, as much as I love Latin, and Latin's the language of the, of the Latin church, as all the documents say, you can see what, if they really want someone's heart and mind, internal participation to really flower that the vernacular might be pastorally useful, not just for lay people, but for even for clerics. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, remember how he started this letter. It's about uh, participating in the heavenly liturgy with the heavenly hosts and the heavenly Zion. And it, it, it's, as you say, Dennis, it, it's not impossible, but it's difficult to, to do if you don't, if you, you go to a foreign, foreign country and you don't speak the language. It's, uh, it, it's hard to be comfortable. It's hard to fit in. It's hard to thrive. It's hard to move. So I think uh, maybe something similar there. Now you skipped over Chris, and you know, yeah. f- for good reason that this stuff that um, confirmation and marriage should be celebrated during Mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any ideas why that would be? I mean, assuming that means they didn't do it during Mass before. You know, if you just right. went up to the altar rail and got married, or you know, had a line of confirmation, why yeah. have it within the context of Mass? Do you think? Well. Yeah, to the first question, why weren't they in the context of Mass? I, I'm not entirely sure, but you're right. They would happen, I think, uh, before or after, I think right before a marriage. I was at an extraordinary foreign marriage just uh, a couple of months ago, the marriage, and then I think the Mass happened right after that. Well, why did they put it in the Mass? Is they wanted to actually emphasize that it's the Eucharist, which is kind of the the source of all the power of the other sacraments, and that everything, all the other six sacraments, every sacramental, the divine office, the liturgical year, all devotions kind of find their epicenter in the Eucharist. And so to append or to attach, or to integrate these other sacraments with the Eucharist helps to make that theological point. Uh, I see. So back in the olden days, like when my parents got married, they would go through the marriage rite and then yep. have and mass afterward, start. not all at once. Uh-huh, I yeah, see. I mean, it would, it would be seamless, but it would be as far as I can tell, two different rituals uh, uh, up against each other and not integrated. Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. And maybe for time's sake, the last one, this one goes to 11. Paul the sixth letter goes to <laughs> 11. Turn it up to 11, baby. Yeah. I love it. He, he's, he's, now, he says this. He says, finally, we wish to emphasize that the regulation of the liturgy comes solely from the authority of the church, that is the apostolic see and possibly the local bishop. Consequently, this is his last word. Absolutely, absolutely no, no one, one else, else, not even a priest, can on his own initiative add or subtract or change anything in liturgical matters. Well, that's been upheld, I what think. Do you think. What do you think he means by that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That can be interpreted in several ways. I, I read that as what a is priest. Absolu- how do you say absolutely in Latin? Maybe it means something different. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these documents have this line over and over. This was the very first norm in Sacrosanctum Concilium. And Pius XII said it a number of times uh, in his yeah. writings. Yeah, and so I don't, I don't know how that got to be. Well, I do know how, but it was ignored. I mean, <laughs> anybody could just make these changes. Uh, it's certainly not the mind of uh, the council, the church, the pope. So, I think anyway. at the end of the day, you know, you have these two poles in liturgy. One is you want a kind of adaptable, I don't know, I don't want to say flexibility, or maybe flexibility. So in different circumstances, different countries, different places, different times of year, local circumstances, you're not locked into one thing that might be not the most efficient or the most mystagogically operative. On the other hand, you want to preserve the unity of the Roman rite, and how do you hang around? If, If the argument was that before the council, there were so few options, there was one way to do everything, and that was it. And then after the council, there's so many options, you can kind of do whatever you want. But I think reading it in between is kind of like there's preferred, there's this if you must, or you know, or even as in my, I read it as the Vatican's way of saying if there's a really good reason. So permissions that are often given as exceptions tended to often become the norms in uh, post-conciliar mm-hmm. uh, experience of most people. And I think that's an important thing to realize. Read the documents, yeah. do what they say. You said exactly what I was thinking, Dennis, and I, I come I come to think about this this construct of um, 
perceived restriction of freedom, you know, like, so, you know, we have these, you know, rules in the catechism or these things about, you know, moral teachings and things, and we sometimes instantly want to just judge those as like a restriction of our freedom. But when you actually abide by those, then you have true freedom and you have a true way to like play and be free when you don't have to worry about succumbing to those temptations because you've been morally formed. And so I think like you can speak about that liturgically too. So like when you, when you do the rubrics and you do the things that are prescribed, then there's this like, there's this playfulness, which I think Guardini was trying to talk about where you have that, you know, variety and, you know, there's, you know, different things that you can do with. Yep, exactly. Gravity. It's not just a good idea. It's the law. When you, when you follow that law, then you're free to, to live. But if you try to deny it, thwart it, you're not going to be free to live for very long. Right. And I think part of the reason we're looking at these documents is to give a proper understanding of what the council and the post-conciliar years were trying to do. I think many people say, oh, well, all the stupid stuff that happened in my parish growing up, that's all Vatican II. Uh, and to say, well, maybe not. Let's just, let's just pull the reins back and get the authentic interpretation and, and try to live that. Yep. All right, Chris. Um, you can leave. Dennis and I are going to answer a liturgy question. Yes! Excellent. All right. <laughs> We'll see you guys later. All right, bye. Don't mess it up. Wait, wait, wait. We need Chris because he knows all the answers and I don't. Okay, Dennis, you can leave. Okay, see ya. Chris and I. (laughs) So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, this week we have a question from John. John says, hello, liturgy guys. Hello, John. (laughs) I feel like I have to say that since Dennis isn't here. That's right. Dennis had to leave us. He's still alive, but he had to leave (laughs) us. Uh, he says, thank you very much for the podcast. I find it very interesting and informative and look forward to it every week. I hate the parts where Dennis speaks. No, no, no. Uh, he says, here's, he says, here's my question at the offertory, the priest or deacon pours a little water into the wine. I've noticed that many priests only add the water to the priest chalice and not the other chalices that are used to distribute the precious blood to the people. Is there some reason or rubric for this or is it an oversight, uh, time saver, unintentional error? Thank you, John. Uh, this is a good question and a common one. Um, many priests do it different ways. Put water into all the chalices, put water into the principal chalice. Some might pour water in like a flagon or pitcher type thing and then put it in the chalices. I think the Bishop's Committee on Divine Worship offered a clarification on this point Um some time ago, and it said it, it is their opinion that uh, water need only be added to the principal chalice and not to the other chalices. So again, this is at least uh, our bishop's uh, interpretation of this, that it need not be added to the other chalice. 
so I wouldn't say it's an oversight uh, when when uh, when I do the liturgies at say the cathedral or something like that, and I have any you know, involvement in this, we follow that as well. So the water would just be added to the to the principal chalice. It's just that like that idea of basically like the intent, you know, if like you have other, um, uh, if you have other uh, patents, not patent, ciborium with hosts mm-hmm. in it, like the intent is that that's part of the sacrifice as well. Is that is that kind of that? No, not quite. Uh, sacramental intention is something different from sacramental matter, which is, this would be a question of sacramental matter. And I think the code says the, the matter for the Eucharist is uh, wine made from grapes to which a small quantity of water has been added. Okay, so why don't you add it to all of them? I think the, uh, at least the USCCB's interpretation of that is the small quantity of water for valid and licit materials just to the to the principal chalice. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's, it's, it has many different, um, I think, invalid interpretations. Uh, some that principal, well, I, I think the, the most, I don't know, spiritually satisfying one is that it represents... Uh, uh, the people that the wine represents, uh, the Christ and the people, uh, excuse me, the water represents the people. And in fact, the prayer that's prayed during the, the pouring into the water is something like through the, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So the, the wine is the divinity of Christ, the water, the humanity of Christ, and it uh, kind of commingles and we become... I suppose, uh, transubstantiated or transfigured or transformed kind of along with these gifts uh, at the altar and we become sanctified with the divine life that, uh, that they become. Awesome. John, I hope this answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or uh, how should they contact you? Should they send a uh, Wells Fargo horse and carriage to... <laughs> if uh, they can find me. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you, and God bless. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>